0: I entitled this one the zoo is all here i can do a good elephant
1: do it <laughs>
2: that's actually pretty good
0: it's kind of painful actually <laughs>
2: i still don't have any animal noises for y'all all right let's clap in three two one Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are excited to have the whole gang back together this week. Uh, Megan Payne, thanks for coming back on today.
0: Hey, it's great to be here as always.
2: I always ask you that as if you're not like a regular contributor and then I think of that in that moment exactly.
0: It's all good because it just means that I can start using the same response and not choke myself on words like I did a couple episodes (laughs) ago.
2: And back exhausted from law school, i'm sure is our good friend luke boggs luke how's it going
1: uh it's going great uh law school's awesome. You should always go to it everyone should it's It's the best experience
2: ever so on this week's show we're going to take a new a look at the new five thirty eight model projecting the results of the twenty eighteen midterm elections in the House. And then for our second topic, we're going to dive into reporting from Randolph County down in southwest Georgia, where the local board of elections is trying to close seven of the county's nine polling places, including some precincts in heavily African-American neighborhoods. That's a move that's uh, gotten headlines locally and nationally. And even the Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp is urging the county to abandon this proposal that they've been weighing. Um, and then for our third topic this week, we're going to talk about a new bill from Senator Elizabeth Warren that aims to rein in some of the bad incentives in the way corporations are run by giving workers a greater voice at the table.
0: I'm so um, excited about that one. Uh,
2: so let's start with our first topic this week. Um, so last week, 538 released their model projecting the results of the 2018 midterm elections in the House the model gives Democrats a three and four chance of taking the House and the possibility of gaining up to fifty eight seats and a large majority in the chamber. Democrats need twenty seats to take control of the House next year um, so locally, the model gives Carolyn Bordeaux a two and seven chance of knocking off Rob Woodall in the seventh congressional district, but it only gives a one in twenty chance that Lucy Mcbath can take Karen Handel's seat in the sixth, and all of the other races in Georgia look like pretty easy wins for incumbents. Um, so Luke, let's start with you. What what did you think of this projection uh for the nationwide chances for Democrats at taking back the House? Um, why do you think Democrats are pretty heavily favored?
1: Well, to answer your first question in a very true but super boring way, it's it's pretty much what I was expecting to see. I mean, it's it's been no secret that uh, Democrats have been doing pretty well in special elections and that many of the districts that we've been winging are districts that we had no business winging in. And many of the ones that we've almost won, we had no business in almost winging. So uh, the overall model uh, is, is pretty unsurprising. The races in Georgia are pretty much what I expected to see as well. Um, I mean, you know, the worst kept secret in Democratic circles in Georgia is that we feel a lot stronger about House Congressional District 7 than we do 6th, and the model reflects that, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, later. But I I mean, ultimately, Democrats are doing this well because we have an incredibly unpopular president who aggressively pursues unpopular things, and uh, it's just that combined with the natural gravity of politics that even Trump can't defy that if you hold the presidency, uh, you're very likely to lose seats in the midterms. And, and so I, I, I think, I, you know, it's exciting, and I'm very happy to see that, you know, uh, Nate Silver is uh, projecting Democrats to win, but it's not that surprising. And I also... As I hope everyone has learned that despite The Onion claiming that Nate Silver is blinded by the gods for, you know, predicting fate, this is just a projection. It's just a model and it's not gospel Uh, and people who misread the model uh, last cycle got really burnt. And so I, uh, as an addict of Nate Silver and his his site, understand that uh, a seven in 10 chance of Democrats, you know, taking control of the House means that three times out of 10, we don't.
2: Longtime listeners will remember that on election day, Hillary Clinton had about a seven in 10 chance of becoming the next president of the United States, and that is not something that worked out. Yeah, a couple of other things that are going on for for Democrats that are really bolstering their their chances here are they have really impressive fundraising numbers. Um, Democrats have outraised Republicans in 71 of the 101 districts that are rated as competitive by the Cook Political Report. And and like you mentioned, Luke, these these special elections have been going Democrats way, or even in, in instances where they haven't won, they've, they've made up ground and in, in really red districts, um, and made those races competitive when in under normal circumstances, those, those races would have been uh, Republican landslides. Megan, what do you think about this sort of national view of the House elections as we kind of kick off the general election season?
0: So I am I think I've mentioned this in past episodes. I am very cautiously optimistic about everything nationally and locally as far as democratic numbers and those sort of sorts of things. You guys already touched on it about um how the odds are the may the odds be ever in your favor. Happy Hunger Games and may the odds be ever in your favor. The odds are in the Democrats favor. But um you know, we had that with Hillary Clinton. And then I think people took it as a foregone conclusion that, hey, well, she's going to win. It's fine. I don't have to be the one to vote for Crooked Hillary. And I am part of the reason why I'm so cautious is I'm a little bit worried that that's going to happen again, not only nationally, but locally as well. So I know we're not seeing that right now, but I'm worried that with more and more Democratic successes, the more and more that mentality is going to come back.
2: The New York Times ran a story, I think this was last weekend, talking about how Democratic candidates across the country, they're not being given kind of a unified message from the powers that be in Washington. And this is something that at least the New York Times portrays as a deviation from big midterm wins in the past. Um, In 1994, people Probably remember that, that Newt Gingrich led the Republican Revolution with the Contract for America. Um, in 2006, apparently, Democrats had a 6 for o 06 proposal, um, although I didn't remember that at all. And if you listen to Pod Save America, John Favreau, who was working with the D Trip at the time and working with then Senator Barack Obama, um, didn't seem to remember this at all. Luke, do you remember a, a 6 for 06?
1: Uh, well, aging, you know, <laughs> pointing out my age here, I was like in middle school. So no, even even oh, okay. I, the political <laughs> addict that I am, don't, do not remember.
2: You tell us way too much about LBJ to to not remember the 6406.
1: I mean, that's fair. uh, But, you know, I'm kind of addicted to the 60s and 70s and and, and, and the 90s, too. So, I mean, I, I
2: really it don't have an excuse.
0: It was a good era, 60s and 70s and the 90s. I can appreciate nineties music a whole lot.
2: Um, so what what do y'all think of this uh reporting that instead of giving sort of a, a national message from Washington for Democrats to be aligned on, that Democrats in these districts across the country are sort of left to come up with their own message and, and pursue their own ideas.
1: So guess what, guys? Google is amazing. And so as Kyle was talking, I was not listening to him and I was Googling. And so the contract of, uh, for, uh, sorry, contract with America was signed six weeks before the 1994 congressional midterms. Guess what, guys? We are 11 weeks away from those midterms. So those guys should have done their homework like I just did, and it took me about 30 seconds. Uh, if Democrats had announced something, they would be ahead of the Contract with America schedule. So there's still time. That's the moral. Uh, so, you know, I don't I don't think the lack of a national message is, like, some big, huge problem. However, I, I really can't recall there being any real unified message from republicans in 2010 or 2014 besides their policy stances which basically could be summed up uh, as uh i really don't like barack obama but if you wanted to actually get more specific that i really don't like that obamacare that barack obama did and i don't like the bailouts that bush did but i'm gonna pretend to obama did it mostly so on that front we have clear policy disagreements. I think it's pretty unambiguous that we are not fans of the president, and we're unified on that. And then, as far as other races go, there's you know the, your local issues that you can hit on or local interests that um, you can focus on. But as far as a like national message, I think there is a national message. It just doesn't have a crappy, uh, you know, focus group tested title for it.
0: I'm going to jump in and say that I also agree that there is a national message. I think it may not be coming from the DNC, but it is coming from some pretty major groups. Um, I know personally I'm involved heavily with the Women's March on Washington. um, And despite the fact that it's been like a year and a half since that march actually occurred, more than that now, Jesus, they're very clear with their messaging. Um, You've got Moms Demand Action clear with their messaging. You've got a ton of – Democratic supporting groups that are very clear with their messaging and all have a pretty specific message. Um, at least that's how it feels to me. So I think that there is stuff out there.
1: Though I think Kyle's point is, is there's not one unified message where it's like all the Republicans were for the most part behind the contract with America. It, yeah, I guess that,
0: I guess that's fair, but I don't, it's what I'm saying is I don't see a whole lot of dissent within the party either. It may not be coming from the party specifically, But I don't see the party disagreeing with each other on those items either.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the the other interesting thing about the assertion that the Democrats don't have a message is they also get complained at for talking too much about Trump and too much about impeachment. When in reality, what's going on when you look at a lot of these campaigns closely is that they are seemingly talking endlessly about health care which, to some extent, should be surprising, given that the last two big midterm landslides were in opposition to the Democrats and their health care proposals. Uh, but the the politics on that issue seems to have completely flipped, given that uh, Republicans pursued an extremely unpopular idea of repealing President Obama's health care law and um, basically taking health insurance back to the bad old days pre Affordable Care Act. I don't. I don't think. I think this is actually a good thing for the party to not have a national message because there is this big debate between the left wing of the party and sort of the emerging democratic socialist wing and the, the older school, more centrist parts of the party. Um, But you also have, The party attempting to gain background in places where Trump won in 2016. And so you have a guy in West Virginia whose name I'm forgetting now, but he's a a guy who voted for Trump, who's running for Congress as a Democrat, but running on a lot of Trump's populist message, running on supporting coal jobs in West Virginia. You know, I don't think the party needs to make all these tough decisions right now. They may have to make them in advance of 2020 when you may need a more unified agenda in terms of taking on Trump and the Republicans but i guess that the the place where uh, the rubbers going to have to meet the road is when these democrats if they become a congressional majority they're going to have to form some sort of governing majority and agree on big things that the party can do and this was the problem with the democrats in the last the last sort of cycle of democratic power is that they had in uh, the first Congress led by Nancy Pelosi um, under the Obama administration was one of the more productive Congresses that we've ever had. They achieved a lot and they passed a lot of legislation that was intended to sort of help avoid the worst of the Great Recession. And then they didn't do a very good job defending it amidst all of the anti-Obama fervor and, um, and lost those majorities pretty quickly. Um, so, so I, I think it's fine for now, but, This is something that has to get ironed out over time.
1: Yeah, and more importantly, I mean, no party out of power really can have a unified message. Like, it's very hard. Like, the contract with America is the exception, not the rule. Because just, you know, just about no one, I I cannot remember another example of something like the contract with America like being being formed by a party and like everyone actually talking about it and all that kind of stuff however i can remember a ton of similar things done by presidents where whether it's the great society or new frontier or the new deal like i mean there's plenty of examples of stuff like that but i really don't remember many other congressional focused like this is what we're going to provide for america I mean, however, that being said, I mean, it's it's pretty clear what Democrats want to do if they take over. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, the talking heads on TV are constantly talking about how Democrats want to impeach Trump. And while I mean, I'm sure that's true, like I literally have not heard one person who's running for office mention that. So I, I don't really think that's going to be as big of a problem for Democrats as as. Uh, some people on TV pretend it will be.
2: Well, and almost all of them, I, this isn't one of these issues that divides the, the far left from the center left. Um, Democrats across the left Tend to say, tend to step back and say, "Well, we should let the Mueller investigation continue, and then we should decide based on whatever his findings are." But there's no reason to sort of prejudge that investigation from his team. But, but speaking of uh, the implications for Trump and in, in the Mueller investigation, there's some really entertaining spin about. Uh, the increasing chances that Democrats can take the House in Politico. And that's that uh, Trump allies are saying that Trump basically can win by losing this fall, that Democrats with a House majority are going to basically be unable to keep themselves from overreaching in their opposition to President Trump, and that uh, the American people in 2020 are going to have sympathy for a Trump administration that's been under endless investigation, and that it'll help him with it'll help trump win re-election in the same way that Clinton beat uh, the usual midterm slump in 1998 with people having sympathy for him in the midst of the Monica Lewinsky investigations, the investigations into Whitewater, all of the stuff that went on in the Clinton administration. Um, what do you guys think of that spin from, from Trump's friends oh on Oh my that?
0: God, just gag me. <laughs> it's so gross. Like, I mean, I, I understand the logic behind it. I, I do. Like, I, I do fully understand it, but- really the world we live in, at least in my mind, leaves very little room for sympathy with Trump because I feel like he steps right in the dog shit and then twists his foot around in it to spread it around. So I, I'm i not sympathetic that he has shit on his shoe. You know, like I, anyway, I don't know. That's just the, that's just the, the mental picture that immediately comes to mind. Like he gets himself into it, so I'm not going to have sympathy for it no matter what happens politically.
1: Kyle's point, I think the point that he's bringing up from other people isn't about you, though, Megan. It's about other people who aren't as hardcore partisan because I don't think you would be willing to vote for, like, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio if, if he was under similar investigation. I think the point is is that um, that there's a rally around like, your, your asshole effect? Because, I mean, l- like, we have to be honest and look at the history of things. It's very, very rare for in the sixth year of a presidency for any president's party to hold on to the seats that they have, but Clinton, like, actually managed to pick up seats. So it's a really rare thing that happens. I mean, and one of the big things that you know, is just sort of the political history of the, you know, the era is that Republicans overreached. And that's why that happened. Now, I feel like it's a lot easier to differentiate between Clinton and Trump, because Clinton was under investigation for mostly his personal failings, as you know, a husband and his relationship failings, uh, that most of the investigations became that, whereas Trump is under a different scenario, since he you know, most of the investigations that would be uh, about him are going to be a lot more about his business relationships and his uh, political relationships. And so that might differentiate it. But if Democrats go down a wild goose chase for two years and can't actually bring anybody to account and, you know, actually, like, indict people, it's, it's, or... Correction, you know, have investigations that lead to indictments, then it's it's something that uh, I think is a real risk, and Democrats need to be careful not to go down that rabbit hole. Because even if all the investigations happening don't convince any people who are swing voters to like side with Trump now, it probably will energize his base. You know, right now, I think one of the big advantages that we have as Democrats is that Republicans control everything. And because of that, their voters are a little bit more content than they usually are. And so there's going to be some drop off just because of that. And if Democrats take over and it looks like we are uh, hindering the Trump agenda in a real way, then I think that could lead to some of his voters uh, getting pretty pissed off and uh, organizing in a way that they're not right now because they feel like they're winning.
0: Well, that goes to the point that I was making earlier about You know how Hillary lost because people were like, all right, well, everyone's going to show up. It's fine. So how can I ask a question? How do we keep the Democratic voter base energized?
1: If if you can answer that question, you you could be a very rich lady. Um, because I'll that is that. that is yeah, it's like that is the great mystery of democratic politics is how how you actually keep our voters voting. Um, you know, for for a sh- short while we had the answer of Barack Obama, but now now we're uh searching for a new one.
2: So I think part of that answer is in um some of the drop off that you saw from 2012 to 2016, and that's that especially in some pivotal states, a lot of Democrats didn't vote, and. I think part of the issue that the Clinton campaign had that may linger on to this day or, or maybe a problem that, that has to get answered in terms of developing the actual national message is what are the things that Democrats can promise that is going to make people actually come out and vote? Because a lot of what Republicans are doing right now is they're running on fear, they're, uh, Arguing that, you know, if you like if you elect Democrats, your your state is going to be less safe, your country is going to be less safe. But the really interesting thing about this return this turn among Republicans is that they actually aren't offering anything like concrete to the people that they're trying to get to vote for them. They're only running on saying that if you elect a Democrat, MS 13 is going to camp out in your backyard and murder your family. And so I think that's part of it is finding things that people get excited about, but actually actually delivering on the concrete things that are going to make people's lives better. And then making clear to voters that Democrats are the party that's going to do that for you. But then part of the bargain is that you have to come out and actually support them in elections. And that's what didn't happen in, uh, you know, after the passage of Obamacare in 2012 and and the bad midterm elections for the Democrats.
0: Well, and we've been speaking a good bit about elections this podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and step up on my soapbox for a minute and say, to our listeners, if you aren't registered to vote, please register. If you are registered, please go make sure that you are still registered to vote. It's really easy to do in Georgia. There's a nice little website called the My Voter Page. Um, what's actually called it, it or MVP? You the real MVP. www.mvp.sos.ga.gov. There is a nice button that says Register, or you can log in and see if you're registered to vote. End of PSA.
2: All right. Well, let's uh, move on to our second topic. That that uh, PSA is a good reminder, particularly for the people in Randolph County, given the, the county's efforts to make it harder to vote in that county. Um, so last week, Randolph County, a majority African-American county in southwest Georgia, announced that it was considering plans to close seven of the, the county's nine precincts for the November elections. Civil rights groups, including the ACLU and the NLACP, cried foul, accusing the county of attempting to support press access to the polls for African-American voters, while Stacey Abrams, possibly the nation's first African-American female governor, is on the ballot. The county's Board of Elections is going to decide whether or not to adopt these recommendations uh, that the polling places be closed on August 24th. Um, So let's start with just the very basics of this Um, Randolph County has nine polling places. They are only arguing or they are only considering closing seven of them in a county that has um, just about 7000 people. Why would it be bad if those polling places are closed?
0: I mean, no one can get to their polling places if those polling places close. I think that I was reading a statistic that said that a lot of people would have to walk somewhere in the ballpark of eight miles to get to their polling place if they closed. I mean, it's just not reasonable to require such a an impoverished area or really any area for that matter, forget impoverished, to go that far to vote. It's supposed to be in your backyard for a reason. And they're it, it's being completely eliminated in this circumstance.
1: The other thing is too is that at least from what I've read, the this this has been their system for quite some time, so just You know, people listening to this show, us, we are people who are on top of voting, we're on top of our voter registration, like, I know how long it's taken uh, Clark County to review my voter registration, and I'm on top of it, but most people, like, this is not even in the top 10, not even in the top 100 concerns that they have, and so, if every single year for the past, like, decade, you've gone to the exact same place on election day, and then you show up and there there's no polling place there, you probably won't know where to go to vote and you probably won't know uh, who you would call to find out where you should go. And so on that front, I mean, that's that's where the, the big risk is. Hopefully, because as far as I'm aware, even Brian Kemp is against them doing this, I, I'm hoping that we can report that this is not what ultimately happens and that they keep most, if not all these places open. But this does show like the really, really deep importance of organizing because if Democrats have an organization in every county, if stuff like this happens, we can make a gig at some.
2: It is interesting as this relates to Kemp. So Kemp's office has said that they have urged the county to abandon this proposal um, it it seems clear, given the bad press, that that's probably the best move for him uh, because he has already, you know, we talked last week about how he had a New York Times op-ed attacking him for being an enemy of democracy. Um, this is pretty low-hanging fruit for his opponents if they want to hit him on it, and so I don't think he gains a lot by supporting the board and closing these polling places, even if it would marginally affect or marginally improve his chances of being the next governor. Um, but in the meetings that have been held locally on this proposal, Mike Malone, who's a consultant that was hired by the county to issue an assessment about voting opportunities in the county and, and ultimately issued this recommendation that seven of the nine polling places be closed. The The county says that he was recommended by the Secretary of State's office. And in his Uh, discussion of this proposal, he said that uh, precinct consolidation, basically taking nine polling places and turning them into two or three is something that's been done in several counties, and is the right thing to do. Um, So so how innocent do we think Brian Kemp really is in this situation? Hey, guys, just want to jump in with a little editor's note here. So since we recorded on Monday night, the AJC reported late Monday, that Brian Kemp is now saying that he did not instruct counties to consolidate their uh, polling places. His spokeswoman says, we haven't advised counties to do anything. We think It's a terrible idea, referencing the precinct closures. The solution to a non compliant polling place in terms of the ADA is not just to shut it down for everyone, it's to fix it. Uh, The consultant in the case, Malone, he also says that the slide that he presented at the local meeting in Randolph County that said that precinct consolidation came from the Secretary of State that that advice came from the Secretary of State. He's now saying that that's not correct. He told the AJC quote, I don't recall ever hearing anything from the Secretary of State that said they recommended this referencing the precinct consolidation. And he did not explain why the slide he presented said that these consolidations did come at the advice of the Secretary of State. Another piece of information in this is that uh, Huffington Post uh, filed an open records request with Randolph County, and they got a response back from an attorney that represents Randolph County, saying that there is no document, report or analysis studying the handicap accessibility of polling places in Randolph County, and the cost of fixing them within the timeframe specified in your open records request. He added that the county has no record of such a document in the past year. So based on that, Huffington Post Post reported that the county basically has no on-the-paper justification for this ADA issue that they're citing. Um, Obviously, Luke's answer to my original question doesn't reflect any of this, but we just wanted to update you with the news, and now I'll give it back to Luke.
1: That's called a leaguing question, Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) um but to answer your leaking question i mean obviously brian kemp is does not have the best interest of voters in a heavily african-american community at heart uh as i've alluded to i have an ongoing saga with the clark county voter registration office uh because i changed my registration when i moved uh back in june yeah june and because of the runoff Uh, election they have not been allowed to change my registration and they were only allowed to start changing people's registrations like last week so they have like four months worth of voter registrations that they have to get through and their prediction now is that they won't actually get to mine for about a month so uh as anyone with half a brain knows a bunch of campaigns including republican campaigns will be Working on getting voters registered, and people are moving all the time, and people are uh, needing to uh, update their registration all the time. And this problem's not going to get better for them, it's going to get worse, and the rate of People trying to register for the deadline is only going to speak up as we get closer and closer to it. And they have a four month backlog that they're they're working through in the registration office. And so.
0: Right. Well, and if my experience lends anything to this, you know, you you guys you said that yours was targeted at about a month during no major election season whatsoever. When I moved to Georgia and registered to vote at the same time as I got my driver's license, they got my birth date wrong. And it took several emails and over a month for them to fix that. I got them to reprint my license right away. But voter registration went through incorrectly and then had to be fixed. So good luck, everybody.
1: And the thing that I want to really point out that I think is important about this is that there's only really like two possible universes that we live in, at least as I see it. There's the universe in where Brian Kemp is just really aggressive in using the Secretary of State's office as a partisan wing of the Republican Party and using it as a tool to do things and have policies that he thinks will, uh, you know, advance the Republican Party, which, I mean, he's basically said in speeches that that is how he operates. And so this is not very surprising to me. However, there's the other obvious thing that really needs to be set out because, it, I, I don't think these are mutually exclusive, and I think this is true. Brian Kemp is just bad at his job. Like I took, it took me five minutes, less than five minutes, five seconds. It took me five seconds to come up with a better alternative for not being able to turn, like to update voter registrations until after this period, and is just you create a a second, you know, database of people to be updated after the date, and then you just press a button, and you could automatically change it to the new one. It's not that hard uh, I have done many similar tasks using you know hundreds and hundreds of uh, different variables and different pieces of data it's it's not that hard to have two lists that are both accurate and one of them becomes operative on one you know a, on a specific day it's not that difficult to do but Brian Kemp's office who is supposed to be you know the business wing of the number one state, to do business, since they do licensing and they do, you know, yeah, uh, we just registered Peach Pod to become a corporation, and we did it through his office, which is it's still not done after like two weeks. Uh, my point here is that Brian Kemp is obviously bad at his job, and he's running for a promotion, and his record is that he really is not an innovator when it comes to how to handle online tasks and that's something that you need in this era and brian kemp is just failing obviously on it and it's it's really just frustrating to me that that's not getting more coverage i know it is getting coverage and i'm sure we'll be talking about that in the coming weeks but this is just typical of his term as secretary of state i really hope we don't have to live through him being governor
2: yes sir Let's bring this back to Randolph County and 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 some pushback a little bit because this is a county. This is a decision that is under the county's discretion to make. And so Brian Kemp, even if he wanted to do something about these polling place closures, he doesn't actually have the legal authority to do that by himself. Um, So do we think that the state should have a bigger role in supporting access to voting in terms of keeping precincts open, funding them if necessary? I think it's important to note here that during the primary, Stacey Abrams was attacked by Stacey Evans for supporting a bill that limited early voting opportunities in the state. And Abrams' uh, contention for why she supported that bill was that it was expensive for counties to keep these early voting places open for such a long time for so little turnout. And at least per what the county is saying, they're saying that they are attempting to save money um, and that these polling places are underutilized and you can consolidate nine into two and, and still be able to accept the number of voters that that they think is necessary. Do we think the state should have a bigger role in keeping these polling places open and, and funding them if necessary?
0: I do. And I think part of the low turnout is also, in it, it's got a lot to do with the fact that it's hard to figure out where they are, these early voting places. And then we, if you know where they are, some of them have really inconsistent hours. I know I've voted early for most of the elections that I've lived here in Georgia And I've voted at the same polling place maybe twice and been able to vote at the same time, like on my way home from work, like again, maybe twice, but not at the same two polling places. It's really variable. And I think that if, you know, we had a little bit more support from the state or a little bit more financial support from hell anywhere, that the system to advertise the locations could be better and the utilization would go up and then it would be more worth the money.
1: I think the biggest problem with this is just like the this state has not really articulated the goal of increasing voter participation and turnout. Like that is just not something that this state's current government cares about. They definitely care about cost and they definitely uh, care about voter fraud, despite there being no evidence of widespread or really any in-person voter fraud but they're very very concerned about it and don't worry they're on top of it but that being said to come up with a way to actually increase voter participation in georgia i would not advocate our first move just be to throw money at the problem uh, because this is something that I think is a lot deeper and obviously like having more polling places where people can go vote like pretty much always would would help there's a point of diminishing returns I'm sure uh, but for the most part it would be helpful but I think if we're gonna have a conversation about the state throwing money at trying to tackle the problem of voter participation then we should do it in a really like thorough way. And we should really try to find some more inventive things that we could do besides just opening more polling places that uh, would help to ensure that folks are able to vote. Because right now, I mean, Georgia actually is pretty liberal in one area, whereas like uh, absentee ballots, which note Republicans use more than Democrats, but like in Georgia, you can get an absentee ballot for any reason. Like you don't even have to give a reason. I could get an absentee ballot despite the fact that I'm going to be in Athens, Clark County very close to my polling place on election day and I'm on campus and our early voting location is like two minutes off campus I could still get an absentee ballot just because I want to and if I fill out one piece of paper and mail again I will get an absentee ballot and so we have the tools to make voting a lot more accessible to a lot more people in Georgia but there's just no desire at all from the state government to have a concentrated effort to increase voter participation, and until the state decides to do that, I think that is a necessary prerequisite before we, you know, th- have the state get more involved. Because if we, if the state is going to get more involved, I don't want it to be ineffective, because then that's a good excuse for the state not doing anything uh, after that. If they, you know, spend some money, keep some precincts open, and then um, nothing changes or turnout goes down, heaven forbid, uh, then that would be an argument that it was a wasted expenditure.
2: So another reason given by the county and the consultant for the county who made this recommendation to close these polling places is that the polling places were not compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. This was a really interesting reason for given for closing these polling places. And so I decided to dig into it a little bit and found that uh, the the federal Department of Justice in Washington um, in 2011 and 2012 ran this project called Project Civic Access, and they looked at a lot of local government services and their compliance with the ADA, and uh, tried to help local governments be become ADA compliant so that people can access these services from local governments. Interestingly enough, Randolph County is one of the counties that the Department of Justice came to a settlement with. Um, the county and the DOJ entered a settlement in two thousand and twelve, and under the settlement, the county was supposed to make upgrades to all of the voting the precincts that were surveyed by the Department of Justice, which was three firehouses in the county that that serve as polling places and they were also supposed to conduct their own reviews of polling places that weren 't assessed by the Department of justice and for all of the polling places in the county. Within a year after the agreement was supposed to get started, they were supposed to find substitute polling places or, and or make the upgrades necessary to their existing polling places so that they would become ADA compliant. This all happened in 2012. And they signed a settlement agreement with the DOJ that was supposed to last three years from 2012 to 2015. It is now 2018, six years after this settlement was agreed to. And this is the excuse that the county is leaning on for why they need to close these precincts. Does this, y'all, does this sort of make plain the bullshit reasons for why the county... Thinks they need to close these polling places.
0: Oh, absolutely! I it, they had they've had six years to do it because the settlement was signed in what July 2012. It it's voter su- suppression 101. This is they they didn't do what they were supposed to do with the ADA things, and now they're going to close polling places. though so because they don't meet ADA requirements. That's crap. They knew that already, and they've known it for six years. It's really suspicious timing that they're going to do it right now. You know what what was wrong with doing it 3 years ago?
2: Yeah, I think it's unclear as to why these polling places are not up to ADA accessibility standards now, but that that also becomes a question for both the Secretary of State's office and the Federal Department of Justice as to why they haven't followed up with the county to in- ensure that this is done. But it, but in any event to to use this as a reason to close these polling places now, I think I think it just plainly makes you know it clear how absurd this is um but but let's let's close on this y'all what impact do we think this ultimately could have this is a county of 7,000 people but it is a majority african-american county um do we think that this could play a major role in who becomes the state's next governor
1: I don't think this specific thing will but it's it's just emblematic of a lot of things that happen throughout Georgia, and many of them will not be as obviously egregious as this is. Uh, and you know, just to, and just to play devil's advocate, just for the sake of what I'm about to say afterwards, is like local governments are very slow. This is something that's probably been on their radar. It's suspicious is why they're doing it now, but them being this slow is not that suspicious since, you know, uh, as I love to rant about, Clark County has plans to do plans, to do plans, to have committees, to talk about committees, about plans. So I, I would not be surprised if you did a thorough autopsy of uh, this county and its local government that this is something that they kept putting off and, you know, for... Uh, reasons suspicious or not decided to do this year however there's like this stuff happens all the time like there's there's plenty of other local governments that have the ability to affect this election by changing the time that polling places are open or changing where they are or any other number of factors and many of them usually fly under the radar and you know it's it's actually pretty surprising that this time we didn't see major legislation from the session of trying to reduce early voting or or any other kind of restraints on early voting. Uh, so, Will, will the resolution of the Randolph County issue affect who is governor of Georgia? I really hope not, because if it's that close, uh, we're going to be up very late uh, in November, and I, I need my sleep. Uh, so hopefully it's a blowout on, uh, on uh, for Democrats, and so we can go back early. But more importantly, uh, we have to be vigilant of this kind of stuff, because as I discussed in the first topic, there's A lot of questions of incompetence when it it comes to this kind of stuff. And, you know, like I said, the more innocent explanation of why they took so long is because they were just super incompetent. And that happens a lot too. And as a result of that, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like willful negligence that can happen. Uh, And, you know, you can take advantage of being slow to pick an inopportune time for your political opponents to shut down polling places and, and stuff like that. And so it's, the important thing is is that Democrats need to watch out for this stuff and be active in talking about it and uh, really nuanced and smart about how we attack these voter protection issues because not all of them are going to be so black and white where it's obvious that there's some you know voter suppression going on and a lot of it's going to be a lot more subtle. So I, I hope this has put everyone on alert for this type of thing because it happens all the time.
2: All right, well, let's leave that one there and move to our final top of the week, our final topic of the week. Um, so Elis- Senator Elizabeth Warren recently introduced legislation that aims to adjust the priorities of large corporations in America in an effort to thwart rising income inequality. The Accountable Capitalism Act basically accepts this idea that corporations are people, but it requires them to be decent people instead of psychopaths that only exist for the purpose of entrenching shareholders and their wealth. Um, Her legislation would require that large corporations have workers elect 40% of their company's boards and place limits on CEO compensation with the goal of getting corporations to invest more of their resources in their workers and their businesses and less in their shareholders. Now, this is a bill that has no path forward in the current Congress or likely before President Trump leaves office, if ever. Uh, but it's an important marker as the 2020 Democratic hopefuls start to lay out their vision for the return of Democrats to power. This is a bill that I want to talk about without talking about, in a sense, uh, because I think that this bill, along with the emergence of the Democratic Socialist wing in the party and a lot of the economic problems that that young people have that they face in this economy, it, it raises this question of whether or not we need more uh, fundamental solutions or fixes to our capitalist economic system. And so I just wanted to raise this question for both of you to start. Um, are y'all comfortable with today's economy and and your prospects in the future of of this economy?
0: No. Just, I mean, yeah, the simple answer is no. The longer answer is that the world today looks very different from the world that my parents grew up in and that's what I'm expected to follow. So, it's it's pretty tough financially.
2: What about you, Luke? Uh,
1: well, I'm, you know, i have a little bit of a different case since I'm in law school uh, and I've been very fortunate because Democrats in this state decided to invest in me uh with the uh, hope scholarship and uh, democrats in dc with a pell grant and other fine uh, programs that have allowed me to get loans with uh, decent interest rates so i feel personally okay um but I, i'm definitely worried about like what i'm going to do after i get out of school and uh, ways that you know I guess I have trouble like answering the direct question that you asked me because I know that like I have so much privilege in being a white straight dude in the South that like, I'm probably going to be okay. And most of my life I've been okay. Uh, But that being said, I'm definitely not comfortable with the economy because just in general, I can like inside my social circles and also just like, just barely outside of my social circles. And even within my own family at times, like, the difficulty of today's economy is like very obvious to me and it's very clear that it's not working for most people and even if uh i am lucky and it works out for me that's still not good enough uh for me and while this is an interesting piece of legislation i think it's more flash than substance uh, unfortunately um I, I do think if this actually got through it might have some positive effects uh, i'm not exactly sure how it would look uh but I think more importantly, we just need to have an alternative to what the Republicans are putting out. Cause unfortunately, uh while Barack Obama I, you know, think deserves a lot of uh credit for how he was able to slow down and stop the Great Recession from getting worse and uh for pushing healthcare aggressively like he did, but that did come at a cost, and the cost of that was putting forth a very clear and exciting, expansive vision of what Democrats think the 21st century American economy looks like, because I don't know the answer to that question. I know a lot of like little pieces of policy that we want to do, and those are really important, but I don't have an idea of like what this generation's new deal or great society is. And I think that is something that is going to be really heavy on the shoulders of the next democratic president uh, or, you know, hopefully a Democratic Congress coming up soon is to start articulating that in a clear way because there's just a lot of issues that are bigger than any individual or even in any state that are happening in the world economy for we to put really a, any significant chunk of the blame on young people of this generation because we, wages have stagnated since basically the 80s and i do not think that is this current generation's fault i could talk about this for a while but kyle you're giving me that look so i'm gonna pause there
2: (laughs) well no i i keep coming back to this article written by michael hobbs and and we'll share it in the show notes uh, but it's called millennials are screwed and it basically takes all of the complaints that are often thrown at millennials how they've killed different industries how we all have fine arts degrees and and haven't invested in ourselves properly in this economy because we spend too much money on avocado toast and it sort of takes a step back and looks at some of the actual hard numbers as it comes to this and and finds that millennials face this like really bad combination of problems in a lot of places you have The stagnating wages, like you were talking about, in the places where there does seem to be some upward mobility for millennials, a lot of that's in big cities. Um, But part of the reason I wanted to bring this up is I too feel a little uncomfortable about like my financial future, and I'm somebody who has a graduate degree, who lives in Washington D.C., and who gets to walk to work every day. And all of those things are wonderful privileges, Um, but even for some people on the higher end you're you're faced with rising housing costs and policy that doesn't seem geared to solving that problem and whether you're sort of on the more privileged end or the less privileged end the a lot of what gets talked about in our politics today doesn't seem to be these big ideas which i think is some of what motivated the the Bernie Sanders campaign in in 2015 and 2016 and I think to some extent, I think millennials are a little bit over being told that some of these big things can't happen. And I've always been kind of on the incrementalist side and and been okay with slowly making these changes. But I feel like we're entering a position where a lot of these smaller incremental tweaks have not delivered security in the way that people think they should have. And so now we're going to enter a period where you have a lot of disillusionment with the Republican Party led by President Trump, and you have a lot of disillusionment with the current economy, and that, I think, gives rise to some of these bigger conversations, which is why we're seeing uh, this legislation from Senator Warren that would be such a really big fundamental shift in the way um, the way this economy runs because of the way in which it's dominated by corporate interests. Um, I mean, do you guys think... That this generation of voters and this generation of politicians can deliver some sort of big New Deal-like legislative accomplishment that would actually be a significant shift in in our economic future.
1: I, I think they're going to have to at a certain point because, unfortunately, the basically since the eighties, we the United States economy has just gone through through a boom bust cycle. And the busts seem to be getting progressively worse, and I, I think I think eventually, like some, the the levy will break on that one. And if we don't make some significant changes to how the American economy works and what like the American dream deal is, I think there's going to be significant consequences to that because it's just not a sustainable level of. Uh, you know, living because, and I think we do to acknowledge it so that we can craft the right policy to fix the problems. Like widespread starvation is not happening in the United States. Uh, you know, most people can aff- afford a cell phone. Most people can afford a TV, but a lot of other things that you know provide for a good standard of living aren't available, and then. On the other side of things, where I think America is really hurting is we're not making the right investments in our human capital or our physical capital and our infrastructure. And so until we get a really clear focus on that side of things, not only will the like American worker feel like they're stagnating, but I would worry that the rest of the world will uh, be able to outpace us and that they're... Educating their citizens better, and that they're uh, building, you know, better infrastructure than we are, uh, and I think that is something that the next Democratic administration really, really needs to address in a substantial way.
2: Megan, you bring kind of a different perspective to this, given that you have your own business. Do you is it is it mixed for you, or, or do you see the need for some more foundational changes too?
0: So I will. First, give the disclaimer that everything I say is uh, colored by the fact, or, or tempered by, I, I don't know what word to use here. I freaking love Elizabeth Warren, okay? I will say it. I'm a massive fangirl. Um, if if she were to re- shake my hand, I may just lose my mind. So there's that. So the fact that she's behind this is huge for me. I have a lot of respect for her and for her ideas, and so that's you know, from that lens, like, yes, please, somebody find a way to push this through. Um, As a business owner, though, um, there's not a whole lot in here that would actually apply to me in any way. I'm a sole proprietorship. And there's no way that I would, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say there's no way ever that I will make a billion dollars and be a billion dollar corporation with shareholders. But at this juncture, I have no plans to do that and really am not interested in doing that. That's not what my business is about. Um, so pretty much everything that, you know, my biggest concern in reading this is the fact that um, part of what's proposed in here is it would prohibit the United States corporations from making any political expenditures without the approval of 75% of its directors and shareholders. That's really the only part that rub- rubbed me even slightly the wrong way in this. Um, it's kind of like, You know, you mentioned earlier that corporations can act as individuals as long as they're not psychopaths. And that, you know, leans to that perspective. But I don't necessarily want the government to have that much control. Um, And a 75% approval seems pretty steep to me. Um, Why not just a majority approval? So, but again, that... I understand why that's in there and it affects me exactly zero from a business ownership perspective. So I'm, you know, I still say that this thing is gold and somebody should find a way to get it past pronto, which I realize is completely naive, but I just love her.
2: Yeah, let's let's do a little the details on this legislation. So basically the way it works right now for corporations is that they are largely chartered by states. Um, I think banks are an exception to this, but but largely states manage the sort of the establishment, allowing the establishment of corporations. What this would do is for corporations that have over a billion dollars in annual revenues, they would actually be required to register with the federal government as a corporation. And they would basically what this would allow is to accept the premise that corporations are people uh, which is was the idea sort of established by the Citizens United campaign finance decision. But if corporations are going to be people, then there should be some sort of ethical requirement that they be moral, decent people and not, uh, these psychopaths that are sing- have a single-minded commitment to increasing value for their shareholders. So basically, this means that they would have to prioritize not only the interests of their shareholders, but also their employees, the communities that they operate in. It takes a wider view of corporate responsibility. This is a view of corporate responsibility that was prominent from the end of World War II up to the late 70s and early 80s before this idea came about that corporate are supposed to serve only the interests of their shareholders, and that any other considerations by a company were you know, this grave mortal sin of corporations. Um, It gives workers a greater voice at the table by requiring that workers elect 40% of board members on corporate boards. Um, It restricts the sales of some company shares by officers of the company, which aims at dealing with um, some of these share buyback issues that have popped up in the wake of the Republican tax reform, basically without getting into all the The weeds on that. It um, requires more of the company's. Resources to go back into supporting their workers and supporting their business than to allowing money to sort of escape the company into the hands of shareholders. And then, like you mentioned, Megan, it requires 75% of approval from the board before political spending. Um, I think that 75% number is basically aimed at making sure that the 40% share of workers on those boards kind of serve as a veto point for. Uh, corporate spending. Um, but the the basic core of this is to sort of limit the political power of corporations and to require them to invest more of their resources in their workers and in their business. Um, this is an interesting proposal to consider in Georgia, I think this is this is obviously federal legislation, but but we are a state often touted as the number one state to do business. I think we recently fell to seven. Uh, but we are a state where Corporate interests play a really prominent role. Um, you know, Casey Cagle got slammed for ending a discount for Delta, the state's largest private employer over this spat with the NRA and gun owners. But also Stacey Abrams, who is a progressive icon at this point, progressive rising star, um, she often touts her good ratings with the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. And there's one proposal on her website, I think it's about Um, small business or or business relations where she actually just links out to her Chamber of Commerce scorecard. Um, So do we think that in terms of our politics and in terms of the politics of the state, that we should consider having corporations play a smaller role? Or are y'all comfortable with with corporations being some of the premier power brokers in our state?
0: I know I said that, that I you know had some qualms about the seventy five percent approval, but I do feel that there the corporations could and should play a smaller role. I'm not sure what that needs to look like because, as stated you know i I don't love that bit, but I do think that a smaller role would be ideal
1: the The moral of today's show is that America requires significant amount of reform. <laughs> Because we need reform in our election system and ha- campaign finance and just just about everything else, our yeah our co- economic policy. So at, at at this point, the status quo is obviously not working. So I I don't know exactly what it looks like, but um, if I had to uh, guess, I would say getting corporations less involved would probably improve things and uh, getting. Just less money in general in our election system is, is probably ideal.
2: I, I think. I think the one other thing that I would add is, I think that small business growth is a good um, alternative to the growth of the power of corporations in in our economy and and this is one of the things that i find so promising about abram's platform is that much of the state's vision of economic development in recent years has been to give tax breaks to large corporations and those corporations may or may not follow through on the jobs promises and the economic development promises that they make in order to get those tax breaks um, you know, part of the reason that they may not follow through on that is that may not be the biggest benefit to their shareholders. Um, but for small businesses, it's not really true that they would have big stock options and stock buybacks that boost CEO pay. It's it's not true that they would have that they would be big corporate sort of faceless corporate entities that don't have any concern for the community that they operate in or, or the employees that they having their employ. And so I so more investment in those small businesses and in some of the other proposals out there for Democrats as it relates to antitrust and sort of breaking up some of the big corporate power, I think that's something that has not only is it important for a democratic economic message, but I think it's important for even bringing some Trump supporters into the fold. uh, Because a lot of these people who are Trump supporters who used to work at a coal mine or a steel mill, who looked to President Trump to bring back industries that that had been gutted in, in places like the industrial Midwest, they, I think, are wary of the power of corporations to just ship a bunch of jobs overseas and and upend the lives and of uh, many people in in towns that used to rely on on these big manufacturing entities. And so, um, I think that that's a message that has a lot of bipartisan appeal. And I think it's one where it's Democrats. I think are are on strong ground compared to the Republican idea of tax cuts that turn into share buybacks and big bonuses for CEOs. Those are, those are things that don't appear to be uh, improving the lives of regular blue collar workers around the country. And so, so I think that this is going to be an ongoing discussion for Democrats, but I I think it's a positive one. Um, But it'll be interesting to see if corporate money and corporate pressure Uh, backs away Democrats from some of these more ambitious proposals.
0: Invest in small business.
2: All right. Well, with that, I think we are going to leave that there for the week. So we will let y'all go and we will talk to y'all next week.
1: Bye, guys.
0: Bye.
2: That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.